This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, creators of the annual Brewers Retreat. To brew on the main coast June 9th through 12th with legends like Vinny Salerzo of Russian River, get tickets now at brewersretreat.com. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today here in Nebo, North Carolina, on the Whippoorwill Farm, is uh, Todd Bora of Fontaflora, uh, which has its own nice little uh, uh, rhythm to it, Todd. Sure does. Yeah. Hey, y'all. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cool. We're going to get into a conversation about brewing here in a second. But first, just want to tell you that as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on custom, innovative solutions that match brewing customers' immediate and future needs. Thinking outside the box, whether it's simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex buildup or ground-level design and engineering, G&D is ready to meet the challenge. Contact G&D Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by the Craft Brewers Conference and Brew Expo America, America's largest craft brewing industry gathering. Join your peers in Denver April 8th through 11th. Details at craftbrewersconference.com. All right. We're here in this beautiful, idyllic location uh, in uh, rural, rural North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, having this conversation with you, my y'alls from the past are going to start coming back out. Yes, they are. Um, tell me a little bit about how, uh, you know, your brewing arc started, Todd, just uh, and how uh, you got interested in this and uh, how Fontaflora came to be. So you're asking brewing backstory in general? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A couple um, minutes. Let's just uh, just want to hear your, you know, a little bit of your story before we start talking about technical stuff. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, an important thing to, yeah, hash out the history. Uh, uh, homebrewing, um, you know, which we were discussing earlier, uh, you know, more and more people getting into professional breweries, you know, from, you know, from being homebrewers. And so I was a pretty, I was a really fierce homebrewer. And I love my first homebrewing story. I was given a, a beer kit uh, from a, a friend of my mom's who, who, who she worked with and, uh, you know, the buckets, the, you know, that whole thing, carboy. Um, and I went to the homebrew store and I marched in there and I bought a kit and I came with a little book and I didn't really know anything about it. I was a a bread baker at the time, thanks to my, my grandfather. And so I was like, this is going to be a really cool transition from baking bread to brewing. And I bought the kit, took it home uh you know it was extract all made it cooked it on my stovetop and when it was time to pitch the yeast i'm scrounging around in the box and there was no yeast and being a, a bread baker i had you know red star bread yeast on hand so i just whipped up a little starter and so the very first beer that i ever made was fermented with red star bread yeast so i've always wanted to kind of return to that one day and and make uh you know sort of that, that very same beer as you might imagine it was really bad um but i think that <laughs> that's I, why you want to make it again and that's why i want to make it again yeah uh but i think that i could do it and it could be okay now yeah um yeah. but anyway so so yeah so home brewing uh is what you know took me down you know a really long obsessive road into into brewing and uh in college it uh sort of 
yeah, it just took over my life. And I was brewing every chance that I could. I was trying to start a brewery on my college campus um, with another friend who is the head of the, uh, I think it's called uh, Over Overworks, or that might be, is that Firestone that calls themselves Overworks, the, the sour mm. program, or is that the Brewdog Overworks? probably Brudog. Yeah, yeah. So he, Rich Kilcullen, um, he's head of their sour program in, in Scotland, and uh, he and I tried to, to start a brewery on our college campus, and hmm. um, that did, did not work out um, <laughs> for many reasons, as you might uh, expect. And so, you know, I, I convinced multiple professors in different areas of study to allow me to conduct and the registrar to do uh, independent studies in different uh, brewing uh, focuses. So I did like uh, biology, microbiology of brewing, uh, chemistry of brewing, uh, the history, like archaeology of brewing was really, really cool. Um, so I got college, I got credits uh, for doing that <laughs> stuff. Um, you know, meanwhile, uh, all the while just constantly, you know, uh, home brewing in my dorm and all of the people that I lived with. Um, really hating me because I was um, pretty pretty gnarly about nobody coming near my equipment in <laughs> the community kitchen. So yeah. not an ideal place to, um, to actually be brewing. But uh, so, yeah, so went from there to, to, yeah, to sum this up, talked my way into a brewing job at Catawba uh, Brewing Company. Uh, they were on, they're lo- located in Morganton, uh, you know, which is where we started as well before moving out to, you know, Nebo on Whippoorwill. Uh, old Whipperill Dairy Farm, and you know I didn't have any brewing experience. I was just a fresh home brewer and talked him in uh, him being the you know the owner and brewer at the time uh, in you know taking a chance on me. And so they, you know, I didn't really have to work my way up very much. Like I delivered mm. kegs at first, and you know, but sort of in between, you know, kind of getting to spend time on the brew deck. So yeah. um, you know, so that's why I moved from from the Asheville area down to Morganton just because it was uh, an incredible opportunity that I couldn't yeah. pass up to just, you know, be able to, you know, put the boots on right away and, uh, you know, not have to only scrub floors, but be scrubbing floors while, you know, mashing in. And sure. so, uh, so that was a pretty incredible opportunity. And I took that and I was the head brewer there or worked my way up to be the head brewer there for, I was there for about four years. Mm. And, you know, it was there that we, that I really started to experiment with a lot of funky beer styles and uh, more unique uh, ingredients and techniques and processes and like all, all that stuff. And so that just kind of paved the way for, you know, but I, I ultimately wanted more and I wanted to do right. that all the time. And so that's what kind of, you know, led me to, to open up Fontaflora Brewery. My business partners um, nabbed me uh, as I was leaving town. Uh, I was moving out west uh, I had a one-way ticket to Portland, Oregon, and uh, <laughs> still ended up going and spent about a month hanging with friends yeah. and, um, you know, visiting breweries out there and, and all that, but then ultimately came back and um, started Fontaflora Brewery. Um, you know, we were a four-barrel uh, brew house in, in a tiny 1,600-square-foot building in downtown Morganton, uh, all hardwood floor, basement underneath, you know, the whole just yeah. you know you know no way to have deliveries like just the worst possible <laughs> sure sure like functioning place to have a brewery but aesthetically it's a really incredible uh space and uh you know then the you know the, i think there's pictures and a story about that in uh in an older issue of craft beer and brewing magazine old breakout brewer story there is so, for sure yeah, yeah that was see those in, in person check it out on beerandbrewing.com or, or pick up the back issue yeah that, definitely <laughs> yeah that was a good plug i like that 
yeah, that was a very exciting time for me when that uh, when when yeah when y'all ultimately reached out and 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 that happened. That was um, you know yeah obviously really. You don't have to say that I'm not the Hollywood foreign yeah, press. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, this is <laughs> it was it was it was a big deal though, and I mean it really anytime I think that's just sort of part of it. It's like anytime you get you know any publicity like that, it's just it feels it feels good, and then especially like you know sort of what what y'all do and kind of who it's geared towards you know well thanks so, thanks yeah um so let's talk about that font of floor vision yeah you know? and uh you know your beers tend to have uh, or i shouldn't say they're not all the same because we're drinking a, a light lager right now yes we are <laughs> yeah and the other one that you've pulled out for us to drink is something completely different than that you know yep. clearly there's a spectrum there and so we can't pigeonhole you into one thing but but there is uh, you know, a drive that, uh, you know, that, that kind of underpins the beers that you're best known for. And, and that's a, you know, a very kind of herbal botanical, sure. uh, ingredient heavy, uh, you know, mix, uh, with, you know, forged and natural ingredients. Yep. And I know that's something you're personally pretty passionate about. Yeah, uh, exactly. Those, yeah, those well said. I, I mean, we make, we, I mean, we run the gamut right now with what, with what we make. And, um, so while we were trying to almost, sort of rewrite uh, how people know us uh, because for the longest time when we were making tiny amounts of beer um, like incredibly tiny amounts of beer at our original location the only beer that really left you know our house was our mixed culture beer um, you know it was what we felt the most comfortable with it was the easiest to do in our space um, you know just ha- invest in a you know in a six head wine filler and you right. know be you know doing you know um, all bottle conditioned um, you know, a, a range of styles, but all mixed culture. Um, and so those are the beers that left our brewery and people started, um, you know, trading or whatever. And, you know, and then we, when we really started releasing some of our fruited sour beers, um, once they started coming out of barrels, you know, that kind of brought us a, a good bit of attention, um, for, for those beers. Um, you know, so that's what we've, that's what we're known for, I'd say. And so now our, our challenge is now that, especially since we make, we're making more beer um, at our new location and we're packaging, uh, not, we're still doing lots of bottle conditioned mixed culture beers, uh, but we also have our own canning line and we, you know, we make a wide range of styles. I'd say more often than not, I mean, you're going to find, you know, lagers in our, in our tanks and, um, you know, I'd say the, the common thread, you know, amongst all of our beer styles is we're, we're 100% local malt, uh, in every single beer. Really? So, you know, from IPAs to stouts, um, the stouts are a little bit trickier where we are purchasing specialty, um, malts from, you know, from, from different places, but the, the base malt, uh, in, in absolutely everything is, um, you know, is, is Southeastern malt and so you know for a variety of reasons um we we chose to go down that path and we weren't always that way we were using for ipas for a while we were using wireman uh and then it just kind of like it was like we're buying you know wireman malt is coming all the way from germany and like of course we could you know switch to breeze or something a little bit closer to home but then our malt our local maltsters just started upping their game and all of the malt is just really fantastic uh, and so we've been learning how to work with it the best. And, you know, so, I mean, the, the IPAs that we're making are, are extremely, are incredibly phenomenal. And so that's sort of what we're trying to, to, to push more so that people kind of start talking about, you know, our, our IPAs in a, you know, in a, in a favorable way, just, 
letting people know that we make these and yeah you know the same with and the same with lagers um i want to let's talk about you know that kind of malt base for ipa you know it's a, not a subject i thought would come up on this but yeah uh, but um, great beers are made from select ingredients with bsg you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need in every step of the way let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2793. Also, Scott Fabricating is the craft industry's leading choice for packaging line automation, specializing in depalletizing, repalletizing, conveyance, rinsing, drying, fill detection, and date coating, Scafab has over 600 installations in breweries, wineries, and distilleries worldwide. With a reliable team of engineers dedicated to fast, reliable customer service, you can count on them to provide systems custom-tailored to your specific needs. Contact Scafab today at 970-403-8562 or reach out online at scafabricating.com. So as we were saying, uh, you found that uh, even local base malt uh, changes or improves i shouldn't say improve i say gives it uh, gives your ipas a character that you enjoy mm-hmm. um because what's good and bad in that kind of case is certainly uh you know subjective but f- from your perspective what was it about you know this kind of locally malted base malt that uh, moved the ipas in the direction you wanted and and from a sensory perspective you know can you describe you know what what that impact was so a lot of it was actually to do with the maltsters getting better and offering malt with less taste, if mm. that makes sense. Sure. So for the longest time, the only the only malt that was available was a uh, six row barley, yeah. and we still use that quite a bit in uh, even in one of our our flagships, our wit beer. Uh, it's still made with six row pilsner malt, um, you know, and so. For the longest time, for mixed culture beers, uh, for for saisons, even clean clean you know saisons, we were using that malt. We were using six row barley, and I didn't want to make an IPA with six row barley. I did not want to taste the 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 grains in that way yeah. in in my IPAs, and so that's why for the longest time we would purchase uh, Weirman Pilsner malt uh, for for our IPAs and. Are again our maltsters started getting better, and they were able to uh, work with local farms in order to secure uh, two-row crops. And so uh, we have three predominant maltsters in North Carolina, uh, pretty close to where we are, and all of them offer a two-row pilsner. And so when that started happening, we started experimenting with that two-row pilsner and realized that uh, it would it would work really well like just the same uh level of quality in our opinion as what we were buying from from wireman now correct me if i have the story wrong but i mean there was a fair amount of agronomics that went into the entire process for local maltsters in north carolina to be able to uh, buy get two row barley that grew well here that also uh you know could be malted into the kind of quality that you're looking for, um, you know, and so you know, it's it, the farming component was also uh, you know part of this, and so there was a lot of legwork that was done uh, years ago to even get to the point where you uh, you have this opportunity. Totally, yeah, and I mean, obviously, a large push is 
coming from um you know coming from the maltsters as well is actually like making those relationships with the farmers uh and and encouraging them to to find those varieties and to grow those varieties and then guarantee guaranteeing them that they are going to purchase the lot so it's not as much of a risk for the farmers to just all of a sudden one day uh, you know, go out there and plant two-row barley in hopes that some magical, you know, person company is going to come along and buy it, you know, whereas they had that promise, that commitment from these maltsters to right. start experimenting uh, with those crops and to move away from move away from six-row uh, or in addition to growing six-row. Sure, you know, and then from an agronomic perspective, there are all sorts of concerns for a farmer. You know, you plant two-row, if your yield is lower, well, you're going to have to sell it for a higher price. And how do you get more for it? Well, you know, you have to have the monsters that are willing to guarantee you, uh, you know, a certain price on, you know, you know, based on the, the amount that they're growing in the land they've got. And, yep. uh, um, you know, I know people who pay for craft beer and pay a premium for the price for craft beer don't always consider, you know, what that means because that price for that malt gets passed down to you. And it's certainly yep. more expensive to buy, you know, locally malted, locally grown base malt. I mean, what I've heard as much as four times more expensive than uh, totally, yeah. And yeah. when that was that was the the kind of the crazy challenges. I mean, especially if you're looking at things from you know like you know business perspective. I mean, we went from you know Wireman Pilsner, which is a fantastic product, to you know moving to a local Pilsner Turo, and we're paying almost double. Wow, you know. So it's not only it's like we we switched them all, and you're all, and you're wondering if the quality is going to stay the same. So you're not even necessarily sure right away that you're, that you're like staying linear with the quality uh, and you're paying double. And so, you know, that was a hard thing to swallow, but for us, it just kind of like, it's the same kind of thing when you start shopping, when you start shopping locally for your food, like you stop thinking about things in terms of, well, well, that is cheaper than this. Uh, That conventional grown, whatever is cheaper than this, you know, organic or local, it just becomes the cost of the food because that's what food should cost. And so for us, that's just ultimately what it came down to. It was like, this is what, you know, this is what it takes for local farms to grow this and then local maltsters to malt it. And then this is what it comes to us as. And so we just tried to build it into our business model the best that we could. Um, but that's also the most challenging thing that we, that we deal with as a brewery is trying to get, you know, without, you know, all of our packaged product just screaming like, you know, local, local, local or whatever, like having that on the labels. How do we how do we get the point across to the consumer that this is why you should pay a little bit more for our beer? And, you know, this is why you should be OK with it. Uh, and, you know, hopefully, you know, I mean, there are those people out there because, you know, people are buying our beer, but, you know, it's, it's that story. That's the most important thing. You know, it's like we, we try our best to let everyone know that, you know, we, all of our beers are brewed with local malt, but how do we tell that story if we're sending beer to New York or to California, or if you come and visit our tap room, of course, like we can have that, you know, that discourse, but you know, that conversation is what everyone is trying to figure out of like how to, how to let everyone know that, you know, you're drinking, you know, a really a, a, a sustainable product in that way. And I think that sustainable piece is, is kind of where it goes to. I mean, obviously brewers are debating that whole question of local versus best. And, uh, you know, it's something that becomes hard to, you know, to parse out. But the 
I think the philosophically important part there is that sustainability and that ecosystem that uh, that you develop then as a business, supporting other local businesses, supporting, right. you know, and and you know, creating an economy then that uh, raises everybody, yeah. um, you know, rather rather than you know moving to some you know lowest common denominator, you know, and, and now and there, like you said, there are places there there are necessities within the world of brewing um, that require. Uh, you know, I mean, there's just only so many places you can grow quality of hops that That's we, right. you know, yeah. uh, that we need for you know the taste of you know current beers, and so yeah. you know, of course, they're going to be grown in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, or... we're, we're not using local <laughs> mosaic hops. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Right. And there are certainly beer styles that can benefit you know from um, you know the you know that the environment malt that you talk about, and, yeah. and for many brewers around the country, like they don't. You know, there are places where barley just doesn't grow like That's that. Right. You are lucky yeah. to be here in North Carolina, where. But, uh, we have that opportunity. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we've always just kind of looked at it that way that, you know, we've been able to advertise, yeah, brew the way that we do and, you know, market, you know, ourselves the way that we do uh, in in a, hu- a huge reason being the local maltsters that took the that first step to do so. And, yeah. you know, just to like add to that, like you mentioned the quality thing, and that's why it took us so long to switch over from the malt that we were using for our IPAs because for me, the quality wasn't there. So like us as brewers, we were almost pushing our, our local maltsters to develop, you know, to, to, to find the two row, you know, to malt it well and to give us a product that it yeah. was, you know, obviously the price was different, but of equal quality. And so when that, that's why when that finally happened, it was like, we can move, we can move our IPAs to local malt yeah. and we don't know, and, and we don't notice a difference negatively. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I imagine that you know, if that as that demand grows, that the, they will face some constraints, and it's the same similar constraints that brewers face. You know, the d- demand is there right now, but capital investments are, are pretty significant, and you have to measure how fast to grow your business, how much debt to take on, how much you know bigger you can get. For sure. So we'll see. We'll see where the local monk goes, but uh, yep. you know that that connection to the agriculture seems important to you. Obviously, you've now relocated your production, or you've added a production brewery on top of the Morganton, uh, you know, four barrel system, you now have That's a right. 15 barrel system yep. out here in the country, uh, at the mouth of the Linville Gorge, uh, on a former dairy farm Yep, and have, <laughs> have built this thing out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, yeah. So, so, uh, but you're very intentional about talking about that connection to the land and the, and the farming that you have planned here, uh, at Whipperwill farm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this was a huge, I mean, you know, it was always a, a dream of mine for sure to, to, to build a brewery on a farm. I never thought I would realize it. I don't, my family doesn't come from money. I don't have money. I don't have land in my family. So it was like, okay. And, and that was something that was, you know, uh, that was presented to me early on. I studied agriculture at Warren Wilson College just down the road from here on the way to, to Asheville. And my agriculture professor phrased that to me one day like that, like, what are you planning on doing with this degree? You know, like, does your family have money? Do you have land in your family? Like, what are you like, what's your plan after this? And, and I, and I didn't know. And I, you know, I knew that I wanted to farm and I, I was obsessed with brewing at the time, like I told you. And so I knew that I wanted to brew. I had no idea at the time, like how the two were actually going to end up, you know, like fully, you know, intertwined. Um, you know, so that was always on my mind, especially like getting the opportunity to travel through Europe and seeing, 
you know, really old farmhouse breweries, uh, you know, in, in France and in, in Belgium. So, you know, there was just something that I constantly thought about. And, you know, when, when my business partners and I opened up the Morganton tasting room, you know, that was a dream come true all by itself. It was like, this is great. Like I'm going to get to be in control of, you know, the, you know, beer program and the beers that we brew and, you know, like the whole shape of a brewery. And then, you know, we, we wanted to expand and we didn't know how, and we looked at, you know, early on, we looked at property in Charlotte and thought that we might add another brewery in Charlotte. We thought that we might add another location, a larger one in downtown Morganton. And then ultimately, you know, this, this property came up for sale and it, it's, it was a really complicated uh, process of how we ended up obtaining it. But we partnered with our land conservation group in, in Morganton, and that's how we purchased the entire tract of land. Um, it was 53 acres, um, about 45 was purchased from them, and they donated their portion to Lake James State Park, which already borders us. Uh, our land is under permanent conservation as part of our deal, uh, them going in on this with us. So it's just really, there's so many layers to it that are just really incredible. Um, and so, you know, for me, when, and when you did this and when you bought this property, um, the county that you're in was a dry, uh, a dry county. Yes. So something I've never, uh, yes. you know, I've never ever in, in all of my talks with brewers found mm-hmm. a brewery that decided to put a production brewery, buy a property and build one in a dry county. Y- you know, <laughs> oddly enough, Jester King is the example of that. Really? Uh, Jester King was unable to conduct retail sales on their property for i believe their first two years as a brewery um and so we yeah this county was dry and we are close with the county a few county commissioners uh, my business partners are specifically and so there was a lot of chatter about uh you know the county going wet and so you know i mean obviously you know their city ordinances uh uh, you know in morganton we're in burke county in morganton but um which was why we were allowed to conduct business there um but yeah the county you either had you could you could sell alcohol in the county if you were a uh i'm doing uh hand quotations right now a sports bar uh and (laughs) it that doesn't sound like what i'm what i'm saying like it's not just having tvs uh and showing like uh football games it was like you could have uh tennis courts or uh basketball courts or a golf course or an equestrian facility so we were trying to figure out all these ways to like we were like should we build tennis courts out here (laughs) and you know it's just like no one's gonna use them um so we were going to do all those things and then the county commissioners were like look like we think that this is going to you know turn in turn in your favor Um, and so then there was, you know, there was a, a vote on it and they, they, they put it on the, on the ballot on a non-election, uh, cycle. So no one went out to vote. <laughs> and so it, uh, it, it passed with flying colors. Um, so, so, so yeah, when we originally bought this land and we were building out, we just sort of thought that we were going to be, um, yeah, distributing our, yeah. our products. And, uh, we, yeah, we, we've been brewing here for about a year now but our tasting room opened in September. Uh, so we haven't even had really like a, in, in the, to experience the spring and summer uh, of what, will, what it will bring out here. So we're really excited to get through. I mean, January is abysmal for 
every every business no right, matter really right. where you are um but let alone for and this us, area is very tourism driven and it's very it summer is. spring and summer tourism driven absolutely yeah. yeah i mean we're right at the lake james state park is the second most visited state park in mm. in the state of north carolina and tons of mountain bike trails yeah. i mean just outdoor it's an outdoor mecca i'm for sure. bring my bike next time I yeah come right. we, can, we can shred well let's talk a little bit about um you know the other you know approach of you know to brewing that you're you're really well known for, and that's that botanical uh, you know ingredient herbal you know ingredient approach. Sure. Um, you know every time I see a beer from you that has a, a long litany of ingredients, I you know I immediately thought, how do you conceive of that mix of ingredients with that many variables, and how you know in your own brewing p- process do you evaluate those ingredients? And then mentally put together the picture of how that beer, you know, you know, how you can combine those to, to create the beer that you want to taste the way you want to taste. Yeah, that's such a great question. You, you know, a lot of um, homebrewers often ask me that question. And then I look at them and I say, you should be the one telling me this because, <laughs> you know, like I don't homebrew anymore. And so but that was the point of like why I started homebrewing and to have, you know, the uh, the ability to have like a five or 10 or 15 gallon, whatever you're working with batch. Right. You know, it's much more, I mean, obviously, like, you know, it's all relative. There's still a lot at stake, you know, people's time and money and everything. But, you know, you're able to truly experiment at a at, at, a, at a very reasonable level um, when, when you're homebrewing. You know, for us, when we're making a 15 or 30 barrel batch, things get things get really real. Um, you know, so, you know, we, I often approach, I approach ingredients, I would say, much more you know, like much more like a chef much more how i like to cook and after you've used some ingredients you sort of under you begin to understand how they work together um yeah i would be careful with that because i was just sitting out so it might be uh <laughs> I'm, gonna, know, I'm gonna open a bottle that of might be a torches volume two mm-hmm. uh, so we can talk about this one for a little bit yeah um, so th- that's kind of, that's our approach. We, you know, it, and it, it, we've been, we've been doing it for, um, we've been doing it for so long now that again, you know, like we, we've began to understand how some ingredients, uh, how they act similarly to, to others. And so that's just, that's just always been the, the goal for us. And, you know, it's just constant experimentation and that's really the only way, um, you know, we were going to learn, you know, how much, you know, like for this, this particular beer, you know, there's, uh, just a, a wide range of, of botanicals in this so often. You, s- you say experiment, but what does experiment look like? You know, I'm, I'm interested sure, in the yeah. process, you know, is it throwing in the tank and tasting it, throwing more in the tank? Or, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, are you making steeping teas or evaluating cold steeping or the, what, what does that? Yeah, we don't, we don't really employ like the tea method so much. We, sure. we try to use, um, the beer itself as the actual liquid for the extraction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so for instance, you know, uh, again, like this beer, this torches volume two, a lot of these ingredients went in hot side and that's a little bit of a challenge because you need to be exact when you're doing that stuff, if you overdo it, you're kind of in trouble. Um, you know, so then you have to, you know, blend back or something if you have even the stock or the capabilities of doing right. so. Um, and so how you, often does that happen to you? You know, oddly enough, we, I don't want to, it sounds pompous to be yourself. like, yeah, we, we hit the nail <laughs> on the head every time, but like, you know, even so when we're doing hot side ingredients, uh, unless, you know, we've, we've worked our way up to knowing we always start out 
lighter at, at, at a rate that we all feel comfortable with based on, you know, like, okay, like we, we know like how, how many barrels this is and how many, you know, like how many pounds or whatever, or ounces of, you know, this particular ingredient. And so we just always start on the low end and then we turn to cold side if you can achieve the same flavors. And that's also part of the challenge. But like with, with torches volume two here, you know, a lot of holy basil went into the, into the, you know, the whirlpool, you know, of, of this beer hot side. And in after fermentation, my, um, we brewed this with, with my fiance, she wanted more, more of a holy basil, more of that Tulsi aroma out of it. So we just kept dry hopping, dry basiling <laughs> this beer. So we, yeah. we put in, a, we put in an, a pound and then she was like more. And it was like, okay. And we did another pound. Then she was like more. And so we put in another pound until we got to like four pounds of, you know, of basil in the dry hop. And so that's an example of, for us, of experimenting uh, where it's easy to do so in something like secondary, uh, where you can just keep, you can keep adding and, you know, and, 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 and tasting uh, the most important thing, you know, just tasting along the way and realizing like, this is where we this is where we want it to be. And until you yeah. achieve that, if you have the capabilities of, 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 you know, to keep going and, and that's what we did. So now, you know, if we make this beer again, you know, we'll either add more, you know, holy basil and hot side, or we'll start out with, you know, a three to four barrel or a three to four pound, you know, dry, dry basil. Yeah. Dry basil. <laughs> so, but they are, they're, they're, they're extremely challenging because there's no, that's the part of brewing where there is not much information sure, out there. Sure. And so like, you know, the folks, I mean, I point to them all the time. They're very good friends and they're extremely talented brewers, but, um, you know, Marka and Aaron at Scratch, I mean, they're just like, they're a wealth of, of knowledge and, you know, their beers that they create. I mean, I mean, that's why they wrote a book. I mean, yeah. because they, yeah. they, they are a book of, you know, of how to do, you know, how to, how to brew with these, these ingredients. And, you know, everybody knows that you can you can put all of those different strange ingredients in beer, but it's always like you you get stumped with how much do I add? Right. And you know, so you know, we we just brewed a, a an IPA with um, with white pine uh, that we it was a super snowy day, and we marched to the back of our property, and uh, we all had uh, we had axes, and it was right after a snowstorm, so that we didn't actually have to do much of like cutting a tree down. There were there were down trees everywhere. And we, you know, we just hacked uh, basically a, a whole tree, you know, all the branches off and we all hauled it, you know, back to the brewery. And, you know, we were sort of taking the stems off and trying to get the needles off. And everyone was like, well, how much are we adding? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. And so we were like, well, what if we just fill up your pickup truck bed full of it? And then we'll just write it down. Like we, we put a pickup truck bed full of pine needles, you know, in this beer. And that's what we did. And we ended up filling our, our whirlpool tank full of pine branches and the beer was perfect. And I, you know, I don't, would I say that if there were like two pickup truck beds full, like maybe it would have had the same result. I, I don't know, you know, maybe a little bit less, it probably would have had the same result, but that kind of stuff is just kind of, kind of fun. You know, like I hope I want to like write that recipe down like that. And then someone find it like a hundred years later and they're like, the hell is a pickup truck bed full of pine needles future ron pattinson 100 years from now <laughs> yeah, totally we'll dig up the uh, brewing archaeology find that recipe and uh, not know what the hell to make of it exactly <laughs> 
Uh, let's talk about some of uh, some of your other uh, favorite interesting ingredients, and uh, you know, some some that you find yourself going back to more often than others, and then and what you find uh, from a sensory perspective, what they add, you know, to the beer, the kind of character that uh, that you like to pull out using them. Sure, um, we we make we make a number of beers with uh, with turmeric. Um, that's a really fun one. We make a, an IPA with turmeric. We've put them in saison, put it in saisons. Um, mushrooms. We really like brewing with mushrooms a whole bunch. Um, How do you brew with mushrooms? So we've experimented with um, putting it, put mushroom, putting mushrooms in hot side, um, roasted mushrooms before, and um, put them into secondary. Uh, for instance, oyster mushrooms we've done into uh, into secondary and roasted them. And they almost took on like a chocolatey profile hmm. uh, that then was really cool in the in the in the final product. Uh, Chanterelles are obviously really well known for being like very apricot forward. Uh, those went into to the boil of a beer that we made. Um, we work in talks right now with uh, with Paul Stamets and his crew. Uh, Paul Stamets is like a incredibly you know incredible mushroom uh, fungi guru. So we're hoping to get a get a collaboration on the books with him right now um we we've gotten to work with uh with sandor cats a number of times on beers um one of which being kvass which i think isn't yeah a cool thing for us to talk about um kvass has been we've brewed maybe eight or so different kvass interpretation styles at this point um you know some of which have included uh you know pretzels in the mash and mm-hmm. all coming from local bakers you know, we did a most recent one with um, second use strawberries after creating our, our heavily fruited sour called Rhythm Rug. So, you know, we, we, yeah, I mean, we just we're kind of all over the place with ingredients that we like to use. Tell me a little more about that, you know, Kavas uh, brewing process. I'm, I'm not as familiar with it uh, as I probably should be. I feel like we kind of I mean, there are a few folks who were doing it um, before we were for sure. Um, and you know, we sort of just kind of made up how we wanted it to be because like a true kvass <laughs> yeah. is like, I feel like, you know, almost like sometimes get like freaked out about like, I'm like, am I culturally appropriating kvass? And I just don't, yeah, I don't know if that's like a thing anybody, you know, is thinking, but, um, it's not protected like lambic. It, it's not so much. No. Um, so, you know, we kind of took the idea of a kvass, you know, which would have been, back in the day stale bread um soaked in water and fermented naturally uh and you know fermented open and then they you know they like this was um very popular like eastern european you know bread-based drink and you know would have probably been more like a kombucha um you know and very low abv uh, maybe a little bit tart and it was often flavored with you know whatever was on hand um you know apples beets caraway seeds lemon uh, birch, a variety of things like that. Um, you know, so, so we kind of just kind of started running with that concept of like, let's make like Imperial kvass. Um, and for us, that was like often making like 3%, you know, uh, mixed culture beers that often, you know, employed the use of bread in, in the mash. See, it's coming full circle with your early, uh, baking experience right here. I, I, I'm seeing how this all fits together. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Honestly, like the, I mean, it's it's super romantic, right? I mean, like beer and bread are like they're literally the same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, one's a solid and one's a liquid. Like the the absolute only difference. How do you? What's the key then? Secret to making a good kvass? 
you know, th- I feel like there are so many different ways to approach it just because it's so subjective. Um, you know, and for us, we've even changed. Well, there's how we, the classic brewer answer. It depends. Yeah, yeah, it depends. It depends. <laughs> well, because we've, you know, for ours have always been, a, you know, a mixed culture, mixed culture beer. And, and, and then we started uh, experimenting with like, well, what if we don't do a mixed culture kvass? What if we did, you know, clean beer with, a, you know, with with kvass style? And so we we released uh, last few well it's probably six months ago we released a, a beer called dip on the dough and it was a 2.8 percent uh hoppy uh kvass with lemon and caraway seed and uh and we and we canned it and uh as you can imagine a 2.8 percent you know canned sort of hop, <laughs> hoppy offering didn't really like fly off the shelves um you did your market research on that one. Oh man yeah that was that that was a little bit rough my business partners were like can we not can <laughs> 30 barrels of a 3% kvass again. It's like, yeah, deal. <laughs> so, but you know, we also just did a an 8%, you know, kvass inspired. It was basically a double IPA with, yeah. you know, with the veil and, you know, when we used a lot of bread in it, you know, the recipe like the, you know, the quantity of bread didn't change per, you know, barrel that we like to use, um, but it just came across much more like much more like a dipa than, you know, than anything else so dippa, dippa. I, 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 you, i've noticed the brewers down here they, they refer to them as dippas and nippas uh-huh yeah and uh yeah pronouncing nippas <laughs> yeah. right right well how do you what do you mean what do you what do you how do you refer to it as i i try not to pronounce the acronym if i don't have to double ipa imperial ipa something yeah like yeah that. yeah sure. i use a lot more words but so I'm what, well if you're not using the acronym then do you go double india pale ale <laughs> That just gets drawn out. There you go. Um, today, you guys are doing something uh, first out here at Weber Will Farm. And you are brewing your very first Cool Ship beer. That's right. Uh, your Wild Ales in the past have, have uh, you know, used a, 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 you know, different kinds of cultures, but, but ones that you've cultivated uh, in some way or another or caught and then, then pitched. But That's right. This is uh, this is a first for you, doing a turbid mash and going through the whole Cool Ship process. Yep. Um incredibly exciting and it's really cool how it worked out having having y'all here for this slightly stressful as well but um yeah i mean we've always been enamored with the process and have you know been making you know true you know mixed culture barrel fermented barrel aged what have you beer you know you know from our you know our inception and the time was never right for us to have a cool ship um thought about having you know i love like arizona wilderness guys they have their like the mobile cool ship we thought about that for a while drive it out to the gorge or something and and you know and then drive it back um but you know we then this place happened so we we're just kind of patient about it and um even though year after year it gets a little bit um frustrating because you're like well that was that that could have been year one you know that and would end up going into our 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 three-year blends and and so you know we just we just stuck with it. We were patient, and we just kind of tr- kept trying to learn for ourselves when we were making. You know, we refer to it as sour base when we make sour base. Um, you know, that end up going into you know all of our fruited sour beers. We, we make it in a lot uh, in, in 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 the same way in a lot of ways as like uh, you know how you would make a spontaneous um, how you would prepare you know spontaneous wort. Um, we weren't doing turbid process before, but we were doing really similar ratios of barley and raw wheat. Uh, we were using aged hops. Um, we were shooting for really high mash temps, longer boils, you know, those things. So we were kind of trying to 
emulate it in some ways, but then being very, very cautious and very, um, you know, just really not wanting to call it spontaneous because it obviously wasn't, you know, it wasn't spontaneous. And, you know, even though like we've been using the same cultures, you know, and Solera method style for four years, um, you know, and so which have run the gamut through like, you know, tons of different, uh, I mean, we don't pasteurize anything. Uh, well, we just started doing that last summer for fruit beers that went into cans, but that's a different story. But anything that's going into our mixed culture beers, nothing, none of it's pasteurized. So like, you know, botanicals, you know, um, fruit, you know, what you name it, all of the stuff is just going in with, you know, we, we wash it off. And then, you know, if there's something on it, you know, or it's just sort of welcome to see what happens. So we have noticed, you know, our mixed cultures over the years evolve for sure. Um, you know, so there is some level of, you know, spontaneity that's going on in there, but it's certainly not employing like true spontaneous methods. So then, you know, when we moved out to this farm, it was like, this is just such a picturesque, beautiful place to start, you know, our, our spontaneous beers. And, you know, we don't know what we're going to call them yet. Uh, we have a little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of time for that, but we've got about what, two years before they're even worth tasting. So that's, that's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, today's really, today's really a a monumental day for sure. I mean, this is something we've been thinking about for the longest time and, you know, I've been watching our friends, you know, make really, really beautiful, um, spontaneous beers for a number of years now. And, uh, we're just really, yeah, we're so stoked to just kind of like enter into that. What is it, you know, in particular, what do you, uh, you know, what is the allure of that? Why, why, you know? make a spontaneous beer versus something that you can, you know, you know use a, a, a culture that you know how it's going to behave with. Sure. I mean, this is a, another big risk that your business partners may hate you for at some point down the road, right? If yeah, for sure. Two years in, we've put all this stock back into some barrels and, uh, you know, none of us want to blend or drink it. That's right. Yeah. Man, you know, I didn't think about that. We should just cancel today. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it just kind of takes the romanticism one step further. I mean, it takes it to the final, it's like the final frontier of, of making, you know, I mean, everyone romanticizes, you know, Belgian, you know, beer. And for a good reason, I think, you know, a lot of it's just, you know, it's uncontrolled. It's, you know, it's un, you know, proven in a lot of ways compared to like, you know, how, how Germans make beer and different things like that. Like a lot, a lot more, it was just kind of like, you know, really, really free and really, and really open. And so, you know, it's, it's that, yeah, it's just that more jazz than electronica, I guess. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and that's why we want to be jazzy, you know, and it's like, we've, that's why I feel like we've, we've almost reached, you know, like the, you know, like the crescendo. So we're just like wanting it to be like, this is it. So this is it. And, you know, and this is your bass drop helicopters. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and so it's, yeah. And, and it could, and it could fail for sure. I mean, I hear a lot of people talking about, um, you know, having to dump barrels and, right. you know, of course we're prepared for, for that. Um, we, yeah, which we will do if we have to. And, um, but there's uh, something about that that strikes me as, you know, connecting to people who have been here and will come to the farm, will see, you know, that brewery and that infrastructure and the future cool ship room that you're building in this right. hundred something year old, uh, you know, uh, dairy, uh, you know, former dairy farm. Uh, and old buildings and, and building that idea of a place and the experience that they have here um, and because it is 
gorgeous. I mean, it is a beautiful place to work, and I imagine it's a beautiful place to drink beer for those that come and, and sit out here. Uh, but to be able to take away something you know, and drink something at some point in the future, no matter where they are, that reminds them of this place and this time and the experience that they had here in that connecting way. I mean, that's that's the stock and trade that wineries in Napa, Sonoma, Paso, others, you know, have have been able to you know build businesses on because you know you visit you visit the winery, you have that that experience of that thing there, and now you know and you see why it tastes the way it tastes. And now, even if you're back home, you know, across the country, you know, the, the you know, sip just kind of evokes that the feeling and that sense memory and that sense memory, you know, it, you know, is that important thing. It's a, it's not something you can quantify exactly, but, That's right. but it does get pulled out by this kind of spontaneous beer. Yeah. And, and, you know, and certainly, yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and, that, and that's what we, and that's what we ultimately want. And that's what we, what we want with, you know, making a lot of the, the beers that we, you know, have been making, um, you know, I mean, again, like not to, you know, to bring them up again, but scratch. I mean, the first time I went there and had their beers, you know, and having, you know, like toasted bark in a beer, you know, when, and we do a variety of beers like, you know, like that here now, like we have a Baltic Porter fermenting in the tank that, you know, we used a lot of, um, shag, uh, shag bark, hickory bark in. And so when I taste that beer, it reminds me of scratch and, you know, and so like they did something, you know, to, to me that is just truly, I find unique and that, that it can really just, you can have a drink of something and it just shoots you right back to that place. And if we can come close to doing something of the same, um, I mean, that's just such a powerful thing to be able to, to offer people. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know if we do that. And I don't know if the cool ship is going to necessarily, you know, do that. I think that's just kind of the, the, the funny part about, you know, for the longest time, you know, people thinking that this meaning spontaneous beers couldn't be really done anywhere outside of, you know, outside of Belgium. And so it's just like, you know, then a lot of people started, you know, doing them. And it's just like a lot of the, a lot of the microbes are, are, are the same. And, and, you know, and so like, but, you know, we hope that there's going to be, you know, subtle differences between, you know, maybe our, maybe our malt has, you know, something to do with the final product being different, you know, as well. And then obviously, you know, I mean, the microbes will be different, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be, you know, sort of the same, but hopefully it captures like the essence of, of us. I think that's interesting. And, I, and what you're saying is, is I think exactly right. I know, you know, Trevor Rogers is, is you know, talked at length about that from Degard that, you know, they're not trying to make Lambic. They're trying to use a similar process, but they need to, to create recipes and do it in a way that makes beer that they like to drink. You know, that, yep. uh, you know, the, the process might be similar, can't be the same. An American sour beer, an American spontaneous beer, uh, uh, you know, American brewers are going to have to figure out the traditions, the recipes that, that even may work differently in different geographic areas. What works in the hill country of Texas, when Jester King does it, it's going to be different than what DeGard does, which is going to be different than what you do here, right. which is going to be very different than what Beachwood is doing with their spontaneous stuff in Southern California, where For, it never gets gold. <clears throat> That's right. I'm, yeah. I, 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 I'm still fascinated by how they brew spontaneous beer there, but it is fantastic. It's delicious stuff. I always check the temperatures when I see people like posting about that stuff, and I'm like, man, it's 70 degrees today, and it's only dropping down to like 55. It's like, oh, cool. You know, but yeah, you're, I mean, they, I mean, Jester King as well, right? I mean, like they're just because the Belgians have done it one way doesn't exactly. mean it's the only way to do it. Well, and I think that's the cool part about like the American ingenuity. I mean, like Jester King has a, 
you know, a, um, a, a cooling coil. And, uh, you know, they essentially have a heat exchanger in their cool ship. And, you know, to help aid in the cooling. Like, who, who says if, that? If they need it, yeah. If they need it, yeah. Who says sure. that it has to be only cooled by, you know, by by the night temperatures you know so that's why it, it is it's really it's really interesting and, and some um, of those i imagine you know if stuff pops in there that they don't like they end up with barrels they don't don't blend in and they right. lose it but then at the other you know the other end of it you could end up with uh you know something completely different that adds a different kind of texture to your blending stock in the the final blend uh, for sure that you wouldn't have had otherwise and i think that's like the that's the trick right there too is really understanding like we all talk about you know ourselves as blenders and in in the beer industry folks who are making you know a lot of mixed culture a lot of fruited you know sour beer or whatever like and and i would i would certainly have never used that term for my for myself or for what we do from you know previously because i had a very set number of barrels that it was just like i don't really have a luxury of blending like i just kind of hoped everything worked out well and it was just like well i have four barrels that are filled with you know uh blackberry you know, sour beer that came off the fruit that went back into barrels. And I hope all these are awesome because they really all need to get blended, you know, together. I'm not taking like barrel one and barrel 100 and barrel 150 and blending them together. Like maybe we'll get there one day, but so that's going to be certainly the trick of like understanding what all of these different barrels are doing that have, that are going through spontaneous fermentation. And, and so really, truly, becoming a, bl- a blender and you know not someone who's just been you know been making you know sour beer for a very long time now this is going to be a totally different thing so what's the next year and the next five years look like for Fontaflora? and staying staying open <laughs> yeah being being a business would be would be great staying open um, is it is is it that much pressure on you Last year was 2018 was difficult. Yeah, it was okay. a very it was a difficult year. Um, you know, not to yeah make it sound terrible or anything. I mean, like we're yeah we're clearly I mean we're doing just fine. But like I mean we the craft beer scene is is very different from even when we wrote the business plan to like come come out here and you know let alone we're you know in in a place where there's a Dollar General store and a post office and nothing else. Um, you know, so it comes with challenges. You know, we don't have people you know you know that are just walking by who can just come in and buy our beer every day so you know it's very challenging when we when we finally started brewing last last january um you know we thought you know maybe foolishly so i thought that i was going to package everything in half barrels and it was gonna go to like you know a certain number of accounts and it was going to fly and people were just going to keep buying that turns out nobody wants to buy half barrels people only want six stools and people only want cans so, you know, we were just like, our business model had to change rapidly. And so we started brewing in January and then we started mobile canning in March. Um, just because we were like, where are we going to, where's, where is this beer going to go? Um, and so 2018 was learning. Two, 2019, we know what we need to do. And we um, have, you know, beer going uh, select amounts into different states for distribution, um, you know, very carefully curated, you know, not sending IPAs too far from home, uh, that kind of thing, trying to make more mixed culture beer, uh, sending those to faraway places just because of the stability, um, I guess just further makes people know us for mixed culture beer. So still the same thing is going to end up going on. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're just continually 
focused on quality. That's our, our biggest thing. I wasn't going to put beer in cans because I was worried about the quality. And then we, you know, we, we invested in all of our own, um, you know, our equipment to really dial in our, 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 you know, our QC program is incredible. And the beers that are going into our cans and our bottles, you know, it's the best that it's ever been. And, you know, so for us, it's just continuing along that path of creativity, but first and foremost, you know, quality, getting this farm up and running and actually, you know, we have fruit trees that have been planted, but we want to have annual gardens, um, so that's going to be a huge thing for this year, really hoping to pump some stuff out of, of our annual gardens, um, you know, and yeah, I mean, just trying to make the best beer that we can. And I mean, we're all having a blast doing it. And um, we have a we actually have a, we have a tasting room opening up in Charlotte uh, coming in June. So that's going to be a really a really positive uh, thing for us. So, um, yeah. Sounds great. I think yeah. that's a great spot to uh, to wrap things up here on the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you have any questions you can uh, or uh, suggestions for the podcast, you can email me at uh, jbogner at beerandbrewing.com. Todd, if they want to learn more about Fontaflora, where do they go? Uh, you can go to... Yeah, check out our check out our website. Check out our Instagram. Uh, Fontaflora.com. Yeah, yeah, Fontaflora, Fontaflora Brew. Um, okay. Maybe Fontaflora.com. Yeah, and uh, I'm pretty. <laughs> uh, you got to sharpen your marketing message. Yeah, here. I know. Yeah, it's Fontaflora <laughs> something. Just Google it. Um, but yeah, you can. Yeah, you could guess it. But Todd at Fontaflora.com. If you have any, yeah, feel free to shoot me a line. Cool. If you enjoyed the podcast, we uh, hope you subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform that you use. And if you want to read more about brewers like Todd, who are pushing the conversation of brewing forward, uh, subscribe to Beer and Brewing Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine at beerandbrewing.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Um, before I end, I just want to thank this uh, episode's sponsors. Uh, G&D Chiller is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Join your peers April 8th through 11th in Denver for the Craft Brewers Conference and Brew Expo America. Bring the world to your brew house with select ingredients from BSG. And Ska Fabricating is the craft industry's leading choice for packaging line automation. Cheers. We'll be back next week. Todd, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, creators of the annual Brewers Retreat. To brew on the main coast June 9th through 12th with legends like Vinny Salerzo of Russian River, get tickets now at brewersretreat.com.